1: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Doughty. And I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And this episode is another listener request. Yeah, I we're think- rolling them out these I days. Know. <laughs> We've done a couple of those lately, so we're doing good. It's on Empress Wu Zutian, Who is best known for becoming the first and only Chinese empress to rule the country in her own name, which she did for 15 years during a time when Chinese women really didn't have very many rights at all.
2: Yeah, but before you start writing your email to us, it is important to note that a lot of empresses or at least some empresses did take ruling responsibilities in the name of their husbands and sons. So if the true emperor were ill or incapacitated or maybe too young to Serve, the Empress would take a place as a sort
1: of regent. But Wu is a different story. She
2: ruled in her own right.
1: Exactly. And she did it in a very interesting way, too. Hers is a story filled with intrigue, murders, secret police, and kind of a burning question. And that is, did her reign really have any lasting effect on her country? And you can look at this question in a couple different ways. You can look at it from both a feminist point of view and in light of social and political reforms that she may have made. Looking back, a lot of people could argue that she really didn't do too much for the status of women in China. At least she really, she didn't create opportunities for them to come into power like she did. In other words, she didn't transform the country from a patriarchy to a matriarchy. But she did enact some changes that stuck around even after her time.
2: Yeah, some major social and political reforms. But we're not going to get into all of that quite yet. First, we need to set the scene and figure out where she came from and how she managed to assume this role of sole
1: empress. So when our story takes place is primarily during the years of the Tang dynasty, which was from about 618 AD to 907 AD. And during this time, women were pretty much treated as second class citizens and men held all the power and prestige through these patriarchal clan systems and dynasties. In fact, women were kind of considered dispensable, almost. Poor families, for example, would often cast female babies aside. And another example is after a king or a high-ranking official died, his concubines were often expected to show their honor to him by committing suicide.
2: Yeah, so pretty low down on the totem pole here. And in general, women weren't even educated as men were. And, I mean, for a poor woman, she couldn't expect any kind of career aside from homemaking and child-rearing. And for an aristocratic woman, you know, she might receive some education through tutors but still the best career if you can even call it that (laughs) is to become a concubine in the imperial palace so the most a concubine could hope for was to give birth to the king's son and hopefully give birth to his heir and ultimately marry him and then finally the highest position a woman could attain was that of empress dowager and at that point of course her son would be ruler and she only had real power if the son were incapacitated in some way, or maybe if he was uh, too young to actually rule himself. So that's as good as it gets. And even if you're Empress Dowager ruling in the name of your son, you're doing so behind a screen. I mean, yeah. literally. They
1: couldn't show themselves. So definitely not a position of prominence in politics at no. all. So this is the kind of culture that Wu Zetian was born into in 624 A.D., But she had a bit of advantage compared to a lot of other women in that she was born into a noble family. Her father was a rich timber merchant who had fought for the first emperor of Tang, which was Lu Yan, and helped him overthrow the previous Sui dynasty. So he was awarded a high post in the government. And Wu's mother was from a Sui noble family.
2: So she was of kind of minor nobility, but very influential at the court. And because of her family's high social position and because the Tong rulers were slightly less rigid in the social conventions they introduced, uh, Wu learned how to read and write and play music, so she was pretty well educated. And she became known for her intellect and her wit, as well as her great beauty. So it seems like this girl is on the fast track to becoming an imperial concubine, if that's the best career aspiration you can get to.
1: Yep, and she did receive that opportunity at age 14, and she jumped at the chance. She was taken into the imperial palace as a low-ranking con- concubine. Concubines were ranked according to whether or not they had given birth to a son, and uh, the birth of a son could kind of move you up in the ranks, but when she came in, she was pretty low down. But the emperor, Taisung, he found her so beautiful that he called her Meinyng, which means the charming lady. But she
2: was kind of a firecracker, too, and that must have Definitely. caught his attention. I mean, legend has it that at one point she told the emperor, legend has it that at one point she told the emperor she could control a wild horse of his if he gave her a whip an iron mace and a dagger. And she basically said if the whip didn't bring the horse into obedience, she'd use the mace to beat its head. And if that didn't work, she'd cut its throat with the dagger. So I don't know if that's (laughs) quite what you would call breaking the horse if you end up killing the horse. But still, um, kind of a forceful young concubine, it seems.
1: Definitely. Not a shrinking violet, that's for sure. And I think that the story... You could keep it in mind almost as we go through her life, because I think she uses sort of a similar strategy with China almost (laughs) during her rule.
2: Yeah, she keeps that mace and dagger on hand, I think, for the rest of her life.
1: Definitely. But while she was working as a concubine for Taitsung, but she also got points for being a smarty. She was assigned to work in the Imperial Study, which is where she was exposed to official documents and learned something about the affairs of state. So preparing a little bit for her future career in politics.
2: And she may have met someone of great importance during this time, too. And that was... Tia Tsung's successor, who was the crown prince, Li Qi. And some people say that she may have even had an affair with him, but at least we can assume she's making his acquaintance at this point, which is, uh, turns out to not be such a bad idea. Yeah, it's
1: crucial because very soon Tai Tsung dies in 649 AD and all the concubines who hadn't had children with him, they are sent to a Buddhist convent to become nuns. And this is preferable fate to what some other concubines had suffered, according to some stuff that I've read. Concubines were occasionally buried alive with the emperor that they served. So that would be bad. That would not be very pleasant. So this was kind of a step up. And we don't know exactly if Wu became a nun or not. But what we do know is that while she was there, she received a visit from her old friend Li Chi.
2: Yeah, who, of course, now is the new emperor, Cao Cheung. And he started to visit her regularly. And by 652, he actually brought her back to the palace to be his concubine. This was a big no-no. And that's because it was considered incestuous because she had served his father and now she was serving him. It was something that was definitely frowned upon by the court. And not
1: good at all. But it worked out in her favor. Within a year, she had a baby boy, which put her in great position to compete with both Tsung's empress, Wang, and his other favorite concubine, Xiaoshu. She'd already won over the Emperor with her charms and gained his trust, but she needed something extra to She's put not, her over the edge. not a
2: shoe-in quite no. yet. Um, so that happens kind of in a roundabout way in 654, when she gives birth to a little girl. And the girl is killed soon after. And... Wu actually accuses the empress of murdering the baby, even though a lot of people think that it was Wu herself who killed her and actually ended up framing Wang for it. But regardless, the emperor believes Wu. He's maybe sort of a simple-minded man, or at least easily swayed by this favorite concubine of his. He believes her, and he sends both the empress and his favorite concubine away. So there she is now, last woman standing.
1: Yeah, all the chips are kind of falling exactly where she wants them to. So next step is Kao promotes Wu to empress in 655, even though his court is really diehard against this move. They were against it because even though Wu was from a noble family, she wasn't from one of the big aristocratic clans like Empress Wong had been. So Wu wasted no time in using her authority to start sort of taking down the people who had been against her because she I guess she was always worried about being supplanted because yeah. she wasn't supported by them.
2: She knew she had to lock down this position. So she had the former Empress Wong executed. She had a lot of the other female rivals executed. And after that, she started exiling their supporters. So... Over the next few years, she's like consolidating her power, getting rid of all of the political rivals, banishing them, executing them, and surrounding herself by people who she feels like she can trust.
1: And then in 660, Kao Tsung has a stroke, which causes him to go blind. He hands over all administrative duties at this point to Empress Wu. And this is a big moment for her because all the power is in her hands right now. She rules in his name for the next 23 years and behind the screen behind well behind the screen but she's getting to make all the decisions yeah so she keeps ruling with an iron fist she gets rid of anyone who opposes her even people in her own family i mean she's ruthless she even sets up a secret police and informer system to help her hunt down and torture anyone who's perceived as a threat to her rule And something else is happening during this time, too. Since a lot of her rivals were members of those aristocratic clans who didn't think that she should be empress in the first place, she ended up trying to surround herself with supporters and officials from outside of these clans, which obviously that was a move on her part to support her own goals. But it worked out in favor of some people who weren't necessarily part of the top echelons of society.
2: Yeah, you buy your, your favors, essentially. So in 674, she presented the emperor with something called the Twelve Suggestions, which were basically proposals for policies aimed at winning the support of the common people. This is another tactic of hers to gain support. You surround yourself with nobles who like you and owe you, and then try to win over the common folks, who are ultimately going to be the ones who either keep you there or Boot you
1: Right. But as we said, I mean, this kind of works out in their favor as well. And this is where we start to see kind of what we mentioned at the beginning, some of the social and political reforms that she made. The 12 suggestions included everything from... Policies that encouraged agriculture and silk production, tax reduction, and a disbandment of armies. She also reformed some aspects of political life, too.
2: Yeah, and there's some social reformation in there, too. The ninth suggestion of these 12 apparently demanded that a father observe at least three years' funeral rite for a mother if he survived her. Up until that point, you could pretty much move on with your life if your wife, who had mothered your children died suddenly, at this point, you had to stop and, I guess, pay your respects for a few years.
1: Exactly. So again, we're seeing not just one for the commoners, but one for the women, too. Women hadn't received this respect before, and now they had it. So putting her influence in there a little bit for her gender. So she shows the potential to effect some changes, but her authority is briefly threatened in 683 when Kaeltsoong dies. At that point, her first son is already dead. And just an aside to that, Wu is actually believed to have poisoned him in 675 for supporting her enemies. So she has the blood of two, not one, kids on her hands now. But then at that point, her second son ascends to the throne as Emperor Chunsung
2: yeah and she's hoping that the second son will be a puppet king she can control him and uh still rule as she has for the past 23 years but he shows signs of wanting to be his own emperor so she manages to have him ousted i would think he would have learned from his older brother <laughs> and he's replaced by her fourth son jui chung who finally is the puppet ruler who she's been hoping for. Um, she's not in the clear even then, though.
1: Soon after Chu Tsung takes the throne, she has to put down a couple of revolts, and those revolts were brought about by Tang loyalists, But she manages to do that, and once that's done, her authority and power are pretty much well-established. People see, okay, she has control of the army, she knows what she's doing, and she's able to rule for the next few years without really many major threats.
2: Yeah, and so finally she decides to ditch the whole puppet emperor charade entirely (laughs) and rule outright herself. So she usurps the throne in 690, She's 65 years old at this point. No spring chicken. No. And no one challenges her. That's what's amazing about it.
1: Yeah, the first time a woman had ruled in her own right in China's history, and no one steps up to the plate to really challenge her. So it's interesting. Part Part of
2: that is no one was really alive at this point to challenge her. She had (laughs) eliminated anybody who would pose a serious threat.
1: Yes, clever. And she doesn't stop there. She doesn't just take the throne. She officially changes the name of the dynasty to Cho from Tong. And interesting fact about that, Chui Tsung, the imperial heir, was actually given her surname Wu. So those of you who are married women out there, you might find this especially interesting. Because then at that point, apparently many other imperial princesses and princesses petition to do the same thing, to take her surname, because they were afraid of her, basically. And it was a good deal,
2: though, if you had that surname, because everybody named Wu in the empire was exempted from taxation.
1: Yeah, I'd take that. Yeah. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> <laughs> so it, kind of an interesting juxtaposition of roles there. Um, but even though Empress Wu had some pretty cutthroat methods of getting what she wanted, she was still considered to be a pretty competent ruler.
2: Yeah, she really continued working on those 12 suggestions she had started out with. And doing that definitely added security to her position, you know, because it gets the support of the common people. And some of the things she did for agriculture, she ordered the construction of irrigation systems and encouraged people to cultivate new farmland. She also had textbooks on agriculture written and compiled and reduced taxes. So encouraging growth there.
1: She also made a difference in politics as well. One of the most significant things she did there is set up an examination system for selecting talented candidates to fill political posts rather than just people who were from the aristocracy. And this was this went for even the highest offices, so that Chinese society moved from being more of a political aristocracy to more of a scholarly bureaucracy. And that system stuck around even after her role.
2: And Dablina, you were telling me earlier, I think, that Part of why she had to do that is she had wiped out so many people. She had to figure out a way to (laughs) fill those positions.
1: Yeah, I mean, that was part of it. She... A lot of the people who had been in those official posts were against her because they were part of the Tang dynasty and kind of opposed her being in power in the first place. And earlier in our story, as you may recall, she got rid of the people who opposed her. So there were some open positions in yeah. the empire at that point, and she filled them in her own way and in a more fair way. Actually, we would consider it more fair Civil I think.
2: service exam, essentially. Mm hmm. Um, and she also did a lot to develop Buddhism and established it as the state religion, had a lot of temples built. Uh, probably another thing that helped win over the
1: common people somewhat. Yep, and helped the position of women a little bit, I think, too. So, like many of our stories, we now come to the dubious question of secession in Empress Wu's reign. As Wu got older, the question of who would secede her became even more urgent because she started, as we mentioned, at 65. So, She wasn't getting any younger. And since she'd changed the name of the dynasty, her Wu nephews now hoped that she'd displace the Tong heirs of the Li family and make one of them her heir. Even among people who liked Wu, though, apparently popular opinion was that the Tong line should stay intact. No one really wanted these wayward nephews to become heirs to the throne.
2: Stick with the tradition. So In the end, Wu does decide to go along with it, uh, partly because the Wu nephews aren't much to speak of. They don't seem particularly qualified for the job. Um, but instead of going with the heir who had been emperor before, her youngest son, Zhui Cheng, she brings back the exiled son, Cheng Cheng, uh, in 689 and names him the crown prince. And I wonder if maybe she was partly impressed by his Unwillingness to be ruled by her when he was emperor? I wondered the same thing.
1: I thought maybe since she realized, okay, she wouldn't be able to rule much longer, she wanted someone with a mind of their own to take over. Who knows? Maybe. But when she was finally forced to give up the throne in 705, the same year that she died at age 82, Sung became emperor and restored the Tang dynasty. So no more Chao dynasty. And... You know, from a feminist point of view, this may seem kind of like a questionable move on Wu's part. If you look at the members of her family who were alive at that point, because she did have a favorite daughter named Taiping, who she could have passed the throne to. But it seems that although Wu really wanted to rule and attain power for herself, she really had no interest in creating those same opportunities for other women in her family or otherwise.
2: Yeah, it was definitely all about her. Yeah, it was about her. And after her death, women were pretty unsuccessful in attempting to follow in Wu's footsteps. Her daughter-in-law tried. She even tried to get Cheng Cheng's daughter named as heir apparent, but didn't work out.
1: No, which is kind of surprising, I think. Um, But it went back to patriarchal secession, and that was the way it was for the rest of the dynasty and throughout China's history. Interesting random fact, though, about Empress Wu, she was buried with her husband after she died in the Shangling tomb. But according to her wishes, the tombstone was left blank. And some think that maybe she left it blank for it to be a symbol of her absolute power, which went beyond words. But others wonder if she just wanted future generations to decide for themselves, kind of like we're doing right now, how she should have been evaluated or judged.
2: So we're writing the words on Lou's tombstone. <laughs> this very podcast.
1: We are. And you can, too, if you have your own opinions about whether you think Empress Wu affected change, if you thought that she was a feminist or not. We'd love to hear what you think of her and her life. And you can write us at our email, which is HistoryPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. Or you can look us up on Facebook or on Twitter at in History.
2: Yeah. And if you want to learn a little bit more about some of these feminist ideas behind Wu's reign, we have an article called How Feminism Works. You can find it by searching on the homepage at www.howstuffworks.com.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. To learn more about the podcast. Click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. yeah it's may 14th to 21st 2020 and to get more information go to defineddestinations.com and scroll down to the roman florence trip with stuff you missed in history
1: class the richest most powerful place on earth a fiction podcast Duman Bay. Duman Bay. Duman Bay. on an epic scale power is everything power gives
2: everything
0: we have to get away from this place
2: Tuman Bay is our destiny.
1: Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tuman Bay.
2: Be served and
1: die for Tuman Bay! Listen to all episodes of Tuman Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.